before we begin, I always acknowledge the Wanneroo people, the traditional owners of the land on which this event's being held, and I pay my respects to their people and their storytellers. So our guest, Raymond Gator, is one of Australia's most highly regarded philosophers and influential public intellectuals. He's been recognised for his exceptional contribution to moral philosophy and his original and sometimes controversial views of the nature of ethical thought. But he's perhaps best known as the author of the prize-winning memoir, Romulus, My Father. The extraordinary and moving tale of growing up in country Victoria Romulus, my father, is a much-loved story of how a compassionate, honest man taught his son the meaning of living a decent life. A favourite with readers, Romulus, my father, is also a popular feature film starring Eric Banner. Raymond Gator is a professional fellow in the Melbourne Law School and Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, and emeritus professor excuse my pronunciation, of moral philosophy at King's College London. He's contributed extensively to both academic and public discussion. His books, essays and lectures resonating with both truth and humanity. So I'm honoured to introduce Raymond Gaeta. Please make him welcome. Uh, can you hear me? I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Such, such a lovely place to, to speak in. Uh, I, uh, I, I tossed up whether I would um, uh, just speak from notes um, about truth, really, and I, uh, or whether I would read something uh, which uh, includes part of the book that I'm uh, now writing. Uh, it's... it's uh, uh, it's, it's a book uh, about people who deeply mattered to me in my life, and um, I'm going to read uh, one, a part, part of that. For the time that I wrote from this, my father, I've been called a writer, uh, sometimes a philosopher and a writer. And I understand why people do it. I'm not here, for example, because I wrote Good and Evil, An Absolute Conception, or edited with Gary Simpson, a book called Who's Afraid of International Law? Now, I'm not being coy when I say that I'm not a writer. I'm often appalled by the clumsiness of my prose, but when my efforts to ameliorate that are even partially successful, those efforts don't give me the pleasure of the kind I might have taken, I'm inclined to say by definition, the pleasure they've taken in a well-constructed sentence. A dear late friend of mine, uh, the poet and essayist Peter Steele, wrote a wonderful essay called Poetry as the Mind in Love. And you can read it in the collection of his essays called Braiding the Voices, Essays and Poetry. Well, poetry uh, as the mind in love could be generalized to something like uh, writing as the mind in love, in love, of course, with language. I'm not that kind of lover, I'm afraid. It's true that I've said to my wife, Yael, and sometimes to others, that I wish I could have been a poet. But one reason uh, uh, that um, I know that uh, I never could is just because I'm not that kind of lover of language. I'd like to write poetry not because uh, I'd 
like to create poems uh, in which I and other people would delight, but because I believe that if I were a good poet, if I could write good poetry, it would make my sensibility, make me more adequate to the wonder of its complexity and beauty of the world. When Robert Mann, uh, also a very dear friend of mine, became editor of Quadrant following the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, a collapse that made Cold War politics obsolete, I wrote over 50 columns for him. I say for him because I wouldn't normally have written for Quadrant. Every month, readers complained to Rob, saying that they couldn't understand the word I wrote. <laughs> and in a letter to the editor, one of them said something like this. Each month, I wait with masochistic anticipation <laughs> for the arrival of Quadrant to see what new barbarities Raymond Gazer has perpetrated on the English language. Uh, and that, uh, that reminded me of a fellow student when I was at the University of Melbourne in the late 1960s who wrote, when he reviewed an article I'd written, something like this, he said, Gazer says that Sartre distinguishes what he calls things in themselves from things for themselves. If you ask me, the whole thing is up itself. <laughs> so you'll understand why, uh, I think, uh, why uh, when some people urged me to write about my father and our life together in central Victoria, I replied that while there might be a good story there, uh, I wasn't the person to write it. Well, I did write it, and people now call me a writer, and always I protest sincerely that I'm not, and always people think I don't really mean it. But before uh, I go on, I must sketch the outline of parts of Romans, my father, uh, that are relevant to what I'm about to say. I'm, I'm sure some of you haven't read it, and those of you who have you know, might need reminding you of some of its main themes. My father was born in 1922 in a Romanian-speaking part of Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia. And when he was 13, he fled his home and tried to become a blacksmith. Just before World War II broke out, he went to Germany, where he believed he could best practice his trade. And trapped there by the war, he met and fell in love with my mother, Christine, at the time a girl of 16. After the war, they emigrated in 1950 to Australia because they had been wrongly advised, or that was part of the reason they had been wrongly advised that the climate would relieve, if not actually cure, the severe asthma. Already on board ship and later in Bonagilla, a migrant reception camp in northern Victoria, my mother had affairs with other men, in part at least because she was already suffering from a form of mental illness, manic depression, of which heightened sexual desire is often a symptom. My father was sent to a migrant workers camp in central Victoria to work on a uh, project to build a reservoir called Ken Curran. And I stayed with my mother at Bonagilla, but because my father was told that I was running wild in the camp at Bonagilla, he called for me to live with him in the camp. At Ken Curran, my father met and befriended two brothers, Pantalimon and Mitchell Hora. Pantalimon, whom I always simply call Hora, as my father did, became my father's closest friend and a second father to me. Mitra, of whom I was also very fond, became my mother's lover and the father of my two half-sisters. He and my father had, a, he and my mother had a desperate relationship, which ended in his suicide at the age of 27 in Maribyrn, a small Victorian town, in 1956. 
And two years later, my mother killed herself on the eve of her 30th birthday. My father and I lived for 10 years together in Frogmore, a derelict farmhouse in central Victoria. For five of those years, I went to boarding school at Ballarat. Frogmore had no electricity or <coughs> running water. We cooked on a one-burner kerosene stove and read by the light of a kerosene lamp. Rats lived under the house when we first moved there, and shortly after, long brown snakes, amongst the most poisonous ones, as you know, in the world, ate the rats and lived under the house in their place. <laughs> and when my father started the poultry farm, did the snakes leave, frightened by our free-roaming free hens. And my father hoped that my mother would come to live with there, but it was quite a mad hope. Most of the dramatic incidents of my childhood occurred when we lived at Frogmore. The most harrowing for me was my mother's suicide and its aftermath, and my father's later descent into insanity. Well, I don't think of Romulus, my father, as a biography, still less as an autobiography. I know people have called it both, but I disagree because it doesn't contain the degree of, the degree of critical psychological probing that would justify their cult. Uh, enabled to be called either of them. I've described Romulus as a tragic poem. I hope that doesn't sound pretentious. Obviously, I don't mean to compare it to the great tragedies, especially the Greek ones. But the reason that that, that category or that genre came to mind is given in the book itself. In the book, after I describe how I felt at the age of 15, visiting my father in a psychiatric hospital after he'd gone mad, I say that as a student, and I quote now, tragedy, with its calm pity for the affliction it depicts, was the genre that first attracted my passion as allegiance. I recognized in it the concepts that had illuminated the events of my childhood. They enabled me to see Mitchell, my mother, my father, and Vatsek living amongst its boulders as the victims of misfortune in their different ways broken by it, but never thereby diminished. I hope that I could show the same calm pity or sorrowful compassion when writing about the suffering of the people I wrote about. I didn't avoid psychological probing because I feared it would reveal to the reader or myself for that matter, matters best left under covers. Not consciously at any rate. Instinctively I wrote in a genre not suitable for such probing. A friend to whom I showed the first draft suggested I put it away and later, when I was ready, write a much longer book. He has a deep and professional interest in psychoanalysis and I'm sure wanted to reflect on my relationship with my parents, especially with my mother. I declined his suggestion. I realised immediately that it would not make for a better book of a kind that I drafted, but rather it would make a book of an entirely different kind. It was then that I thought of it as a tragic poem, or at any rate, an elegy informed by my understanding of tragedy. I didn't know really what I was doing when I wrote the first draft of Romulus, my father, in three feverish weeks, oscillating between exhilaration and depression. I'd only written philosophy before that, and though, as I said, I instinctively wrote in a certain genre, I had no conscious intention to do so, and few other conscious intentions other than to write truthfully and to bear a kind of witness to the values by which my father lived. Now I believe in that latter aim I was successful despite the book's many other failings. 
Some critics have said that had I been ethically more critical and psychologically more probing than my father, I would have been able to enter more fully into my mother's take on the world. I think they missed something fundamental because they failed to see, as people often do, what's involved in understanding another person's take on the world. I was 12 when she killed herself. I hadn't seen her for almost two years before that, and not at all, not all that much in the years before that. To see the world as someone else sees it, you need to be imaginatively inward with the concepts in whose life they understand themselves, others, and the world. And if some of those concepts are fragmented, only partially understood by the person who possesses them, as was obviously the case with my mother in regard to her illness, then you have to understand that too. Iris Murdoch said that the, understand, the understanding of another person is a work of love, justice and pity. For it to be a work of justice, you have ideally to be in conversation with that person, or at least in imaginative conversation with them. To be able to ask them why they believe this or have done that, and then listen and possibly respond to their replies. Empathy, or at any rate the desire and the capacity to understand as fully as possible how another person understands things, is essentially, I mean it belongs to the very nature of empathy, a dialogical engagement. This is how I put it in an essay about my mother, whose title is An Unassuageable Longing, published in After Romulus, 14 years after Romulus, my father. When I drive to Shalva, Shalva is, is the name of a property that my wife and I have um, in central Victoria, rather close to where I grew up. When I drive to Shalvat, passing through Castlemaine and then Malden on roads my father and I travelled on, or when I'm on the beach road driving to Mentone, where Bora lives, I miss them, sometimes intensely. I do not miss my mother in that way. I sometimes also wonder what my father would think of a film or a book, or what Hora would think of a film. But I can speculate, knowing then, that they might think this or that, or that they would be unpredictable as, on this matter, as only human beings can be. My mother, of course, had a distinctive perspective on the world. Neil Nicholson, who was a young farmer, I suspect was in love, or at least infatuated with her, described her to me before I read Romulus, my father, as, quote, a woman of substance. Commenting on that in the book, I say that he meant not merely that she was no scatterbrain, but that she had the arresting presence of someone who experienced the world with a thoughtful intensity. I never knew my mother like that, not because I knew her differently, but because as a child I couldn't make such a judgment. She doesn't have for me the individuated presence of an adult, a distinctive perspective on the world. So I can't imagine being with her as though she did. But that's how it would have to be if I could miss her in the way that I miss my father and Hora. I wish I could miss her that way. When I miss my father and Hora, I imagine us in conversation. I could miss my mother as I do them only if I could talk to her as an adult if I could ask her why she did this or that, if I could comfort her for what she'd suffered as I now understand it, if I could offer forgiveness where she were she to ask for it, for the wrong she'd done me and my father, for which I sorrowed as she did, but for it did not judge her. 
But I can't seriously conceive of any of this. I knew her only as a boy. And even when I wonder anxiously what she would make of the book and the film, Romulus, my father, and of this book and of me, her son, who put her under the public gaze, I know that though I can, though I can frame the question that I would put to her, it's incoherent for me even to try to imagine a conversation between us. That's the end of the film. There's yet a deeper reason why I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote Romulus, my father. For some months after I decided to write about him, a decision that was triggered by a response to the publication in Quantum's of the eulogy that I gave to his funeral, I failed to write more than a few pages. In late January of 1997, I listened to a tape of music my daughter had given me for my 50th birthday. On it was a song by country and western singer Emmy Lou Harris. It's called Goodbye. I can't remember if we, if we say goodbye is its refrain. It's not a great song, but that haunting refrain suits the melody and her voice. For a week I played it every day, loud so that the glasses rattled in the cabinet and the bass rumbled in my guts. And then I told my wife that I would rent a cottage near where I grew up and write the book about my father. But all the time I'd been listening to Emmylou Harris, I was thinking about my mother, and I spent the first week of three writing about her. Well, you don't need to be Freud to think that that provides rich material for psychological speculation. But I don't think much of it would add to understanding Romulus, my father, or even an unassuageable longing. It would fill no interest in interpretive gaps unless they were forced into closure by a didactic, theoretical, and perhaps even ideologically inclined reductionism. Peter Gay says in his biography of Freud, that Freud wrote to Stefan Zweig, quote, whoever turns biographer commits himself to lies, to concealment, to hypocrisy, to embellishments, and even to dissembling his own lack of understanding for biographical truth is not to be had, end of quote. Well, that's Freud at his worst, I think. I say that as an admirer, indeed as someone who's just trying to finish a long overdue essay for the Oxford, Oxford Handbook of Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. At best, it's an exaggerated way of saying the biography and autobiography are vulnerable to psychologically motivated distortions. But anybody who took that quote from Freud literally would not read biography or autobiography. If someone were to ask, as of course many have, was Romulus or Christine Gator as his son depicts them, some will answer that they were, and others that they, that they weren't. Uh, theories about my actually, actually complex psychological states, I mean, as it was then, rather than as they appear in the book, will not settle or even help to settle that question. Of course, someone who believes that they were not as I depicted them might invoke psychological accounts of my unconscious motives in order to explain why they're not, but those accounts will not establish that they are not, as I describe them. In fact, it presupposes that they are not. Though I had little idea of what I was doing when I wrote Romulus, my father, I believe I know what I'm doing in the not yet finished book of portraits. The book will be called Portraits in Love and Gratitude, and I'll include part of one of them in this lecture. Some are of teachers, others of friends. One is, my, is of my late father-in-law, and writing about him 
inevitably I'll write about my wife. My publisher calls it my mentor's book. I understand why he does, but mentor is not a concept that can capture adequately how some of the people I write about have mattered to me, what they awakened in me, or deepened what I had been awakened to previously. At its deepest and most precious is the love of the world, of a kind that's not conditional upon weighing up the good and the evil in it. Sometimes it was mediated by the beauty of a natural world, and sometimes by the beauty of things human beings have created. Because for me, the latter extend back to ancient Greece, I live joyously in an extended, continuous present. Plato is my companion, so Descartes, Kant, to name only a few great philosophers, Ditto for Aeschylus, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, and Bach, and of course there are others. I couldn't imagine my life without them. The portraits will be worthless if they're not truthful in intent and achievement. In such small pieces, and that is longer than 500 words, that explicitly express gratitude, much will be left unsaid, just as much is left unsaid in Romulus, my father. But I hope in, this, in the case of this new book, what I hoped in the case of Romulus, that what's left unsaid won't compromise the truth of what he said. There will, of course, be many psychological and ethical motives urging me to write as I would wish things to be, rather than as they are, or as they were, for most of the people I write about are dead. But there's a scepticism about the possibility of truthfulness of a more radical kind that I want to talk a little bit about this evening. It's now commonplace to observe that if you ask seven people to describe someone, they all know that I give you seven different stories. It's an observation that can point in two directions. Taking us in one direction, it, it directs attention to psychological difficulties that stand in the way of an account upon which all seven could converge. But for so long as the difficulties are only psychological, agreement is at least in principle to be had, even if one thinks it's unlikely in practice. Certainly once all the relevant evidence is in hand, only one person says, ah, oh, she seemed to me like this. And another person says, yeah, but that's only because we saw her in these circumstances, etc., etc." Hmm. It's, it's always been a, a puzzle me, actually, why uh, the idea of perspective, seeing someone from perspective, should encourage skepticism. Because after all, if you have a perspective, then you go around, you like see the tree like this, I go around and I see the rest of it. But um, there's a scepticism which is, which, which is much more radical than that. And, and the scepticism is, it says, look, even in principle, uh, you can't agree finally. You can't establish, you might agree, but you can't establish that so-and-so was really like that because there's nothing in the world which is to be really like that. Nothing in the world against which these narratives can really be compared. That's, that's a kind of radical scepticism that one hears time and time again at writers' festivals. I, I always say it's one of the minor consolations of uh, uh, Donald Trump's election that people actually believe in truth and facts. <laughs> <laughs> they have, for many, many years, undermined themselves. Well, what I said in response to Freud, I'd say again now. Anybody who professes that kind of scepticism will not read biography, autobiography, narrative history, or anything else that relies on the assumption 
that there was least in principle an answer to the question, was so and so really like that? I'll be asked at the portraits of my new book, and I hope my answer will always be yes. How could it not be? But of course, there'll be people who will say no. For the remainder of this lecture, I want now to discuss why uh, I think that's a justified hope. And I'll do it by reflecting on an extract from the portrait's new book. And its subject is a man called Martin Winkler. Winkler taught theology in Germany in the 1930s with the great organist and humanitarian Albert Schweitzer. When he was around 40, Schweitzer gave up his university post and concert career and trained to become a doctor. After graduating in medicine, he went to Africa where he built a hospital in order, he believed, to bring the benefits of Western medicine to one of the many places in the world where it was desperately needed. He asked Winkler to accompany him, but because Schweitzer worked, as Winkler put it, 26 hours a day, Winkler declined. Not long after, however, he went to New Guinea to do there the same sort of work that Schweitzer did in Africa, though not as a doctor, but Winkler trained as a nurse. War broke out, he was arrested as an enemy alien and brought to Australia where he spent the remainder of the war in camps. When he was released, he practiced as a Lutheran pastor and worked for some years as a laborer until he was employed to teach German and biology at Ballarat Grammar School. Though I went to another school, St. Patrick's College, where I was boarder, Winkler taught me German at the grammar school from year nine until the end of year 11 when I left St. Pat's to attend Melbourne High School. Winkler was perhaps the wisest man I've known. Eccentric and a strong, passionate personality, he was more than a little daunting. But in year 11, threatened with expulsion from St. Pat's, I found refuge each week in his study. The headmaster told me that I was corrupting the boys because I'd read Bertrand Russell on education <laughs> and had spoken enthusiastically to them about his attitude to sex and sex education. I don't like the way you think, Asia, but I like the way you play football, he told me, <laughs> explaining why he hadn't yet thrown me out. I, 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 they used to call me the tankers because I couldn't see, and so I'd just go straight through all the time. What was in fact? So, Winkler, uh, uh, however, liked the way I thought. So when he learned about the cause of my trouble, he gave me a book to read at home, I should say, because I was about to go there on vacation. He's superficial, he doesn't understand what he attacks, but you might as well understand why you're in such trouble, Winkler told me. The author to whom he referred was Russell, and the book was called Why I'm Not a Christian, which he took the trouble to borrow from the Ballarat City Library. <laughs> Despite reading Russell, or perhaps uh, as the headmaster St. Patrick probably thought because I read him, my energies at the time were directed more to becoming a true class delinquent than, than to study. Infatuated I was, as I was then by the rebellious glamour of Elvis Presley, Jimmy Dean, and Marlon Brando. <laughs> but my most vivid memories of my school years, uh, and the ones that uh, still give me the most pleasure, and, and evoked my deepest gratitude. Now, at the times when Winkler went to a little organ that he kept in his bookline study and played Bach cantatas to, and talked with me about them, I was entranced by his untroubled confidence that he had revealed to me some of the great treasures of European history. It never occurred to me to ask why he did it, 
I knew, as everybody knows, that people enjoyed sharing what they loved. In the process, I came to see how the love of his subject, German language and literature, his love of Bach and Handel and of much German cultural history were inseparable. Without compromising the need to do what was necessary to enable me to pass my examinations, he taught me what it can be to love a language, a natural language, steeped in the history uh, of, of people who shaped it and were shaped by it. For him, the study of language was a kind of anthropology that enabled one to understand the people and their way of being human in their language. And I'm sure that's why I've emphasized in much of my work the importance of our thinking of almost everything that defines a sense of the human condition, our mortality, our sexuality, our vulnerabilities and misfortune, the importance of that of a natural language used creatively at full stretch. Winkler was in fact initiating me into what Plato would have called the form of pedagogical eros, initiating me into the art of loving, as Socrates puts it in the symposium. Conscious though he was of the greatness of much of what is called Western civilization, he was a European, uh, steeped in it and formed by it through and through. His knowledge of its evils lacerated his soul as much as love of its treasures nourished it. Now, for a man like him, it couldn't have been otherwise so soon after the Holocaust. One of the least complacent men I've met, he knew the dangers inherent in a revering tradition. He knew that a certain kind of respect for it, perhaps the most common kind, excluded and silenced voices from the past, and paradoxically, by wrapping them in the cotton wool of respectability, neutered even those that it celebrated, depriving them of a power actually to shape us. He knew also that because, as George Steiner once put it, we come after, that is, after the Holocaust, we can't justify it but have the confidence people who came before in the capacity of the humanities to humanize. But he also believed that the Holocaust should not diminish his love of Bach and much else of German culture. As a human being, he wanted, and as a teacher, he felt obliged to share that love with his students, hoping that they would find it worthy of their love and nourish in them as if they had in him a love of the world. For me, in uh, later years, thinking about the Holocaust, about how it should be characterized morally, legally, and politically, about what it shows about the prospects of the common humanity, and about the hopes we can place in education, Winkler's seriousness about this was a gift to me. When Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization, he said it would be a good idea. <laughs> Winkler was not long out of the internment camp when the Nuremberg trials of Nazi criminals began. A year after the trials, the UN passed a declaration on genocide, describing it to be, quote, a shock to the conscience of mankind, and as, quote, contrary to moral law and to the spirit names of the United Nations, and as a crime which the civilized world condemns. Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term and who developed the first account of the concept, believed passionately that its establishment as a distinct category in international law was an imperative for, quote, a civilized jurisprudence. 
Many people have pointed out that civilized is a word that is itself ethically compromised by its association with racist incapacity of Europeans who formulated the international law to see depth of meaning in the lives of cultures that they then described as primitive and which included the cultures of most of the peoples of the world, some of, the, some of whom were the victims of colonial genocides. Inevitably, therefore, many of the readers of my portrait of Winkler might be suspicious of a German Lutheran pastor who went as a missionary to New Guinea in the late 1930s. When I first met Winkler in 1961, in 1960, the great anthropologist William Stanner wrote that the cultures of Australia's indigenous peoples show, this is a quote, all the beauty of song, mind, dance, and art which human beings are capable. Stanner's observation reflected in the West at that time a new capacity to see in black cultures an ever-deepening responsiveness to the defining facts of the human condition to our, as I said before, to our mortality, our sexuality, and our vulnerability to misfortune, and therefore to see these as cultures from which we could learn. Winkler spoke to me in the same spirit about the people with whom he lived and worked in New Guinea. He told me often that he had learned more from them than they had from him, especially about what it means really to understand the connection between our humanity and our embodiment or if you like, that we are human beings rather than just persons or rational beings, inescapably, and if we understand this properly, joyfully part of nature. It would, of course, be natural for me to say that Winkler was an inspiration to me, but I resist doing that, or at any rate doing it flatly, because inspiration is a word that's too general to describe Winkler's effect on me, covering as it does a multitude of virtues and vices. Inspiration can be corrupting, and sometimes it's merely the effect of enthusiasm. Even when enthusiasm is passionate, it will be banal if it's directed towards things that are banal. Because it's contagious, enthusiasm can be a pedagogical asset, but it's ethically neutral with respect to what it's directed towards. Love, on the other hand, Plato was perhaps the first to see, is in complex ways related to the good. One can be a passionately enthusiastic debunker, but love asks us to celebrate the beloved. Even more than enthusiasm, love can be a pedagogical asset, a psychological aid to learning, to making something attractive or to energizing students who are not interested in their studies. But much more important than that, however, is the fact that love can be revelatory. It's sometimes an indispensable means to seeing the value of something. Often we see something as precious only in the light of someone's love for it. So you see, when I speak of love, I really do mean love. If I'm told that someone is passionate about this or that, I always want to know with the concept of love and the distinction between what is really love and what is its counterfeit would be essential to an elaboration of that passion. With no pedagogical strategy about how to bridge my delinquent interests and ambitions and the five things he put in my way, Winkler never talked down to me. The quality of his attention to the things he loved made me trust their value and to trust in him. We become like what we love, Plato said. It's true. Winkler's love made him the kind of person I trusted and was right to trust 
though often I didn't understand until much later, sometimes many years later, the full significance of what he said to me. For many years after I left school, I visited Binkler at his home in Ballarat, and for many years he showed me large role in teaching. In my first two years as an undergraduate, I studied psychology. Together with two friends, I started a magazine critical of uh, what we were being taught in the psychology department. When the Beatles came to Melbourne, one of my co-editors wrote an article about the enthusiasm of the young people in the audience, which he called the form of mass hysteria. Mass culture and alienation were popular themes at the time. His article was an earnest, slightly prissy collection on social responsibility. Winkler didn't like it. He listened while I defended it at length. And eventually, after midnight, he drew himself and placed his hands on his large dining room table he had six children, leaned towards me and said, Gator, you know what the core of responsibility is? It's responsiveness to the needs of another in a lived encounter. I've quoted from memory, of course. He then said I should read Martin Buber's Iron Bound. I was humbled and moved. Though I didn't fully understand them, his words stayed with me for years. Sometimes when we don't understand everything that others say at the time they say it, we might trust what they say, allow it to enter our lives, to find in its own time ways to engage with what we already know and with our capacities, emotional and intellectual and spiritual, for understanding. We often learn most deeply when we're moved by what people say or do in life and in art. And when we're moved, we often claim to have understood something we had not understood before, or understood so fully before. We sometimes say we've seen depth, or even sense where we had not seen it before. When we find wisdom in words or deeds because a particular person has spoken or done them, when the authority of someone's speech or practice moves us to take seriously something we've not taken seriously before, or that we did not fully understand it, or to find depth where we hadn't before. Usually, over time, and sometimes not even very consciously, we critically assess whether we are right to believe the words to be wise words, right to be moved as we were. And then we must try to assure ourselves that we didn't yield our assent only because we are naive, or callow, or sentimental, or love to pathos, or gullible, and so on. And for that reason, we must often step back, step back from what's moved us in order to assess critically whether we can justifiably trust it and ourselves for being moved by it. When he drew, up, drew himself up at the table that evening, Winkler called me to a kind of seriousness, to consider a possibility that had never occurred to me, but also just to think, for he detected intellectual and moral laziness in what I had said. I was touched, as I often was, by his loving severity. Years after I first met him, when I despaired of teaching, Binkler told me that there are two ways to think about teaching. One is to dream of pulling a switch that will make a thousand lights come on. Another is nourished by the image of passing a candle from one person to another, or of planting seeds, not knowing when or where they will grow. The former is a temptation to charismatic teachers. Earlier I said that inspiration was not the most important word to capture Binkler's effect on me. It doesn't distinguish the teacher who inspires and seeks disciples, who abuses their trust by eroding their freedom to dissent 
from one who, like Winkler, moves the students, not by the forcefulness of his, his indeed strong personality, but by the love of his subject and his desire to share it. Love, Plato says in the symposium, I quote, never proceeds by force, nor does it submit to force, end of quote, including the force of a charismatic personality. Truth, Plato rightly believed, is a need of the soul. The possession of it is food for the soul, only if we come to it in the right way. Winkler honoured his responsibility to the world he loved, and he honoured the responsibility to his students to, as Hannah Arendt put it, never to strike from their hands their chance of undertaking something new, something foreseen by no one. Winkler's was the wisest advice about teaching that I've ever received, as was his rebuke when I defended my co-editor's article on the Beatles. The seeds he planted in me were still then germinating. They grew only many years later when I wrote Good and Evil, an absolute conception, which I dedicated to him. I could have subtitled the book, Responsiveness to Need. Victor's words, which, as I said, stayed with me many years, engaged with something I knew from my life with my father. I believe, perhaps, that that's why they stayed so long with me. My father showed a compassion that still strikes me as wondrous towards my mother, who deserted him, and her lover, Mitchell, who had been his friend. He even paid their rent when it happened often. They were threatened with eviction because my mother could not control her impulse to spend. That impulse, uh, compulsion indeed, is a symptom of manic depression from which, as I said before, my mother suffered from her teenage years until she killed herself at 29. Mitchell also killed himself, if you remember, as I said, two years earlier. And my father had found it impossible to turn his back on their desperate need, which I think he believed would destroy them. I've given that as an example of what Pinkle was talking about, about responsibility as being responsiveness to me. My mother and Mitchell responded in complex ways to my father's compassionate response to their need, but even as a boy, I accepted uh, a gift to me, though I didn't fully understand why until I was an adult. People have often asked me how I survived my childhood reasonably saying, my <laughs> and some believe that they know the answer. And they think it was because my father and Hora loved me deeply and that I never doubted it. That's an important part of the answer, to be sure. But there's another part that's just as important. It's this. It's the fact that I came to see the world in the light that my father's goodness cast upon it. And that prevented the pain of my childhood from becoming bitterness. It's bitterness rather than pain that corrodes the soul, deforms personality and character, and sometimes tempts people to misanthropy. My father's goodness enabled me to love my mother without shame or serious resentment, though I was painfully aware of the disdain that many people showed towards her because she neglected me and later my half-sisters, and because she took many lovers, which, as I said before, can also be a symptom of manic depression inseparably in her case, from a kind of romanticism about love and life. To be able to love is as important as to be loved, a fact that we must constantly hold before our minds 
when we deal with children who have deep psychological and spiritual wounds. Some of the barriers to loving are, of course, psychological. But as my reference to loving without shame implies, they can also be moral. Or rather, as my father taught me, not by his words, but by his example, a moralistic distortion of morality. I learned from him that the aspiration to be morally clear, to aspiration to morally clear vision, which sometimes requires a morally severe assessment of what someone has done, is never inconsistent with a need to love theosophically. He never denied that my, father, my mother had wronged him. Some people find incoherent the idea that love could be morally severe and yet not be judgmental or resentful. And the roots of that incredulity go deep in Western culture, at least back to Aristotle. Winkler's love of Bach awakened the same love in me. I drew on it, I needed it when I wrote Romulus, my father. Writing about things that affected me profoundly, including my father's descent into madness when I was 14, living alone with him in a dilapidated shack in country Victoria. I had to resist as much as possible all dispositions to pathos or sentimentality. That's not a merely personal remark. Anyone in similar circumstances should do the same. But in resisting these, I wasn't trying to get feeling out of the writing. I was trying to make the feeling true. I don't mean that I wanted it to be sincere. Sentimentality is sincere more often than not. In resisting sentimentality, I wasn't so much trying to feel right but trying to see things right, to understand things right. To be truthful, not about the facts as I've told them, but about the meaning of those facts and the significance of the story I was telling, I listened to Bach. The distinction, as I've just expressed it, between facts and their meaning is simple enough if one thinks of facts in a workaday sense as what we find in textbooks or encyclopedia, or as a judge does when he reprimands. Uh, uh, someone who has, let's say, a barrister who's given to rhetorical flourishes by saying, stick with the facts, please. At the end of Romans, my father, I described a scene outside the church door after I'd given the eulogy at my father's funeral, and I caught sight of a man who I did not at first recognize because I had not seen him for 40 years or so. And the first draft of that read like this, I quote, when I went towards him, I saw that his eyes were filled with tears. There was Neil Nicholson, the man who had been kind to my mother and who had fallen from a haystack when my father worked for him. Every word you spoke was true, he said. Your father saved my life. His presence and his words moved me. I thought again of Frogmore and my life there with my father. My father was buried in the Maryborough Cemetery, not far from my mother. No, sir first draft. My publisher and editor, Michael Hayward, said we needed another sentence between I thought again of my life there with my father, that sentence, and my father was buried in the Merrillow Cemetery, not far from my mother. When he said it, I could see that he was right, so I produced one. In the light of what I said earlier about the circumstances in which I wrote the book, you'll see why. This is it. This is a sentence I produced on the last. I remembered my mother laughing as she talked with Nicholson at the chicken one I gave. And I then also changed the last sentence. Instead of saying, my father was buried in the Mirabara Cemetery, not far from my mother, 
I wrote my father was buried in the Maribyrn Cemetery, close to my mother. The published version reads, his presence and his words moved me. I thought again of Rob Moore and my life there with my father. I remembered my mother laughing as she talked with Nicholson of the chicken wire games. My father was buried in the Maribyrn Cemetery, close to my mother. Well, it's a fact that my mother talked with Nicholson. It's a fact, too, that I remembered her laughing on at least one such occasion. It's also a fact that my father's grave is approximately 10 metres from my mother's grave. But had I written all that, as I've just read it, Michael, my publisher would not have been pleased. The statement of those facts can't convey their significance in the way that the sentence I wrote does, by its rhythm and by its tone. I suspect that it's not an exaggeration to say that anybody who reads that sentence I wrote in response to Michael's request would understand why I published an unassuageable longing 14 years later and why the essay has that title. I own the title of Helen Garner, who wrote of my mother the following, I quote, In her son, whom she repeatedly left in the care of his father in horror, she inspired an unassuageable longing when she came back and lay depressed in bed all day, unable to do the work of a wife and mother. He used to creep into the bed beside her to bask in the warmth of her body. End of quote. Alex Miller writes, uh, quote, When Ray told me he titled his essay on his mother an unassuageable longing, I thought of Emily Dickinson's image quote from Emily Dickinson, the craving is upon the child like the claw it cannot remove. When you ask, to conclude now, you ask who he was, let me answer in a time-honored fashion and tell you a story. In those words, Isaac Dennison, the non-diplomat of Carmen Dixon, author of Out of Africa, expressed a conception of narrative identity. Stories, of course, were always told against the background of a common understanding, which must include a common ethical understanding. In Character Annis Limits, an essay in After Romans, I write of how my father's European friends criticised his compassionate responsiveness to the needs of my mother and Mitchell as being dishonourable and shameful. I tried to take the reader to a perspective from which she could see that his friends did not understand the conception of goodness that transformed his understanding of when fear of dishonor and shame were appropriate. What, however, if someone who would criticize his sense of honor in the way I expressed it were, uh, were to be asked, what was Romulus Gator like? And supposing that he replies that Romulus did and said the things that his son said he did in the book about him, but that while his son celebrated Romulus's values, he despised them. They were, I'm, I'm supposing this interlocutor to say, the values were a man whose foolish heart led him to dishonor himself by paying his wife's rent when she lived with a man who cuckolded him. They were, he continues, disdainfully, the values of someone who believed that a man who was clearly mad, who lived between boulders on a hillside where he talked to himself while he cooked in his urine, should be treated fully as an equal in friendship. Quite clearly, someone who would say such things about my father would tell a different story to the one I told. Did my father pay my mother and Mitchell's rent? He did, it's a fact. 
Was he there for the good and generous man? Or was he a cuckold who dishonored himself still further? To tell a story that would show who he was, we would have to answer that second question. That there is, I believe, no neutral ground on which to plant our feet when we try to do it. No ground on which reason or facts could favor one answer over the other. Then remind, let me remind you again of Iris Murdoch's remark that to see the reality of another human being is a work of love, justice, and pity. Not long after Romulus, my father, was published, I read from it at Sacred Heart Mission in St Kilda, reluctantly tries aware that homeless people came there for lunch rather than for literature. At one stage, a man who was obviously mentally ill stopped. He raised, asked, asked me to stop. He raised his head, which he'd held in his hands, and exclaimed, God's in this book! Remembering the times when I was a young man that I worked in a mental hospital, I was anxious about what he might say or do next. I mean that it's filled with love, he explained. A group of about six girls, sex workers, who needed money to pay for drugs, not one, I think, over 20, asked me to read again and again passages about my mother, which uh, uh, which I had uh, not read before and had not read again because they're too painful. Anne Mann refers to this episode in her introduction to the text classic edition of Romulus. She writes of those girls. They beg Gator to repeat again and again passages about his mother, seeing not only something of their own pain in her suffering, but understanding that her troubled life was being written about with a compassion that they themselves longed 